0: We now know what happened to Jacob Wetterling, but the whereabouts of dozens of other Minnesota children still remain a mystery. 19-year-old Susan Swedell disappeared from Lake Elmo 29 years ago this week.
1: This has never been a closed case.
0: It's been a nightmare.
1: It was a snowy night, only about a 15-minute ride.
2: It's just like she fell off the face of the earth.
1: There there isn't a day that goes by that that they don't think about
0: Susan.
2: I, I think in Susan's case, somebody knows something. Welcome
0: to the Still Missing Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Thanner. To this point, we have gained a better picture about the chain of events that occurred leading up to the night of Susan's disappearance. Of course, there are multiple areas that are confusing or have missing or conflicting information, but we've made it to that moment, that moment that Susan was last seen at the gas station getting into a man's car that drove off in the direction of downtown Lake Elmo. What happened to Susan from there, we don't know. But the oddities and curious events do continue in the days that follow, at least as they relate to her mom and sister. Remember the bumpers guy from last episode? Christine and I spoke about him and what happened the day after Susan went missing. This would have been January 20th, 1988. Here's what Christine said.
2: Yes, I met, and that was the one at Bumpers. And did he show up at your guys' house the day after? Yeah. Well, yeah. And we do have a list, a list of people that were next to our phone that we were calling. Was one of them. But of course, you know, Mom and I weren't even. Um, I don't know. We were just calling everybody and. His number was there, so yes, I mean at one time we couldn't figure out how he even got there because it's like surprise, surprise, he's there and who called him. But you know, in the frenzy of everything, you know, we just call whoever's on the list and yeah, he come he came the next day and he came with that car. So the car that matched the description of the car that was seen at the gas station. You know, the mag wheels, I mean, it was, you can't, and what was really, really odd is that, um, you know, well Sue's boyfriend was there, the one that she broke up with, and you know that made sense that he was there, but was there, and the odd thing about him is that he, he um, came over on the sofa and he wanted to kiss me. I mean, this is completely inappropriate behavior. I mean, I ran upstairs and just could not believe what was going on. Um, Sue's missing and he's coming on to me. I mean, this is how fast he is. And it scared me so much. And then mom said, well, this, you know, his car fits the description. And we told the police. But again, I don't know. I left a lot of. From you know, my mom to handle a lot, I was the one upstairs a lot. I, when something felt wrong, I just ran upstairs. I mean, 16, it just life doesn't make any sense anymore. Then it
0: sounds like just another strange twist to the events, and once again, I'm not really certain what to make of this. I also asked Jesse about it. Here's what he had to say when he mentioned Susan's new boyfriend, he too is referencing the bumpers guy,
1: you know. Uh, Susan's new boyfriend showed up at the house. Um, Mom and Christine said uh, after he left, you know, how did he know? Did you call him? Neither one of them said that they did. And uh, he just kind of showed up and then started helping, you know, kind of. And when I interviewed him, you know, years later, neither one of them remembered that, you know, saying that uh, he kind of just showed up. Did you think that
3: was at all unusual that... They both, that both the ex-boyfriend and <laughs> went to the house and all together were you know, like there. Is it, is it, it just
1: kind of struck me as a little odd. You know, I don't remember the ex-boyfriend being there. Not that he wasn't. I'm just saying I don't recall that. Again, it's 30 years. I do remember this guy showing up and and dad showing up all of a sudden and um, the three or four of them went down to Kmart and this clothing store and, you know, what the hell is doing down there, it's just a little unusual. You know, if it was me, I'd say, you know, I'm in to type to back away, leave the family to do their their job here, or you know, or be together and try to figure out what the hell happened. I'm just going to go sit on the sidelines and and uh, you know maybe pray for them or something.
3: Yeah, and it was Christine who had said that the ex-boyfriend had been there as well, and that he also went with them to that him and with her, the family, and the dad, too. I think she said the Body and Soul was the name of the dress shop, but...
1: Yeah, um, that makes sense. That meant, yeah, that... Do
3: you know, was Susan getting calls not only at Kmart, but also at her second job from this I believe so, yeah,
1: both jobs, yeah. I believe this, I, I'm not certain, but I believe that most of the calls came to her when she was at Body and Soul. But again, 30 years, you know, so... But I believe, yeah. that, I'm pretty sure...
3: Do you recall who had reported that she changed um, out of her work clothes?
1: I'm pretty certain there was, a, well, I know for a fact it was, it was the employees at, uh, at Kmart. Maybe even the manager.
0: From the outside perspective, I do see how correlating the bumper guy's entrance into Susan's life with her disappearance could feel and seem like a strong link. Imagine if your sister or your daughter met a new guy who you were hesitant or uncomfortable with, and a few weeks later, your sister went missing, your daughter went missing. We'd all probably make that same correlation, at least at some point in our mind. But at the same time, it's my understanding that this man has been questioned and ruled out by authorities, and as Christine had summed up in episode 5, that she'd been told the Bumpers Club guy had just been at the wrong place and the wrong time in his life. And there was nothing more to it than that. In the days that followed January 20th, a few more oddities occur.
2: When I went to, you know, we didn't go back to work and school for a while. So when um, we went back, you know, everything was fine. You know, I, I had breakfast and stuff and, you know, you just put the bowl in the sink and everything and she just had out. And But when I came home, I'm the first one home. So when I come home, the key wasn't in the normal place. The key is always under either the infamous rug (laughs) or under a certain box. But the key was in a different spot. Um, It was still on the same um, same shelf, but it was moved way over now. I don't know. I always put it in one spot. So that, obviously, I was really thrown off. I didn't know where the key was and I didn't even want to go into our place and there's no cell phones. I can't just call mom. Um, but I wanted to get in and it was cold and I was just looking all over the place where the key found it. And then when I went in, there was this very sweet smell in the kitchen. Um, I didn't know what it was. It's just, and, and when I went over and got a snack, and um, went over to the um, the sink, and there were dishes in there. Now, when I had left, there was only my bowl and a cup, so there were dishes in there. So, yeah, there's somebody in there, and I'm home alone, and so I called Mom and said, there's something really wrong here, so she comes home, and we talked to the police about it. So, um, it's... It is... Once again, a total mystery. We don't know if somebody was watching the place um, because as soon as we go back to school and work, there's somebody that has been in there. <laughs> it's just another mystery, but it was a very sweet, pungent smell. And, you know, now I know that it it's drugs. So that's how clean cut I was. I had no idea what it was but it smelled really off, really different, and it was very pungent.
3: Um, what kind of drug, what What are you um, referring to?
2: Well, probably some sort of marijuana or something. It didn't smell like cigarette smoke. It had that real sweet, pungent smell. There were dishes in the sink. Um, I didn't go upstairs until Mom came home, so um, I didn't want to go upstairs, so... We finally went upstairs, but then, you know, there just seemed to be something totally off in the house. And then when I started going through Sue's room, I just felt like, you know, I I was doing that every day. I was trying to find something that would give me some idea of what's going on, because that's the mode we started going into. Mom and I were trying to find something, and that's, you know, we had found that list by her phone, you know, there was nothing other than that. <coughs> and the dishes and the pungent smell, there wasn't anything except for when I start, when I go through her room, um, I go and um, look under things and everything. I would, you know, but there's, you know, there was no reason to look under things because we had already done that. But I had looked under the bed and Sue's outfit was there. Well, so it hadn't been there before here we go into a whole another mess of things. So, and that was told to the police, you know, obviously everything was told. So, you know, it's just another mystery, but it was another really bad day because it felt like somebody had been watching the place, you know, somebody from this day um, all the way, you know, when we talk about this, We just wish we had somebody in the house to be in the house and guarding the house, basically, or somebody watching to see if somebody would come back to the house. But how would they know to come back the very day that we finally go back to school and work? I I just don't get it. It's just another mystery to it. There's a lot of that in this.
3: What I was wondering was, was the spare key, now I understand what you're mm-hmm. saying in terms of somebody watching the home, but yeah. I was wondering if there was anyone else that you were aware of that knew the location of the spare key, besides obviously your mom, your sister, and you.
2: Well, it wouldn't be, I don't know. I don't know. I was just thinking that it wouldn't be d- but yet, you know, she was... She Sue worked in the afternoon and at Body and Soul. That was that shop, and then at night at Kmart. So she was a lot of times she would sleep in. You know, she, I mean, she was just tired. So I don't know. I mean, she could have had somebody over that knew where the key is. I don't know. I mean, that's that's a, that's that's just. I don't have that information. I haven't even actually really thought about that. And I would never have put, pushed that key way over in that corner.
0: I'm also going to read you a paragraph from Jessie's daughter's paper that also summarizes what occurred in those days that followed. The paper says, Susan's mother also reported an incident to law enforcement that occurred on January 26, 1988. Susan's mom had finally gone back to work and her sister went back to school. According to Susan's mother, Susan's sister had come home from school, and upon going into Susan's bedroom, she discovered the red outfit that Susan had reportedly worn at her Kmart job that night she went missing, balled up the way Susan used to do it, and jammed underneath Susan's bed. Susan's sister also reported that when she came home that day, there were dirty dishes in the sink that were not there when she and her mom left for the day that morning and that there was also a funny smell throughout the house, possibly resembling marijuana. There was no sign of forced entry, and the spare key, which was normally placed in a special location, appeared to have been shifted. There was no sign of any of Susan's belongings being taken, including clothing or any grooming or makeup products. This past week, I received an email from an individual who said her family lived in the same home the Swedells had. She expressed sentiments that as a young girl, she had often heard her mother talk about Susan's mom leaving her contact info in case Susan ever came back to the house. She said that she thought of Susan often. It got me thinking about how that despite this case has received such little attention that it hasn't been given a voice over the years, there are so many people who remember and think of Susan people like this young girl who had lived in the home after them. It also got me thinking about the voicelessness of this case over the years. I mentioned a few episodes back that there have been things over the years that Jesse and the Swedells have done, but that I hadn't covered yet. So I'd like to share with you another example of how this case and the people closest to it have not been listened to over the years. Here's Jesse talking about a career-long push for a policy or a law that would collect DNA right away
1: when a person is reported missing, when a, when a, at the time when we go take um missing persons reports, we go to the house. The people would tell us, you know, what what happened, why they were missing, or why they thought they might be missing. We take all their information: the name, mom, and that any friends, any money that they had on them, what clothes were they wearing last time you saw them, and all these pertinent questions. How are you getting along? And this was all on a form, and you just read the form out, you filled it out, and so forth, and and then you dealt with that afterwards, you know, the information that you got, you dealt with. Well, 99, I shouldn't say 99, well, yeah, 99% of them uh, were solved within, you know, just a few days. So it was mostly a runaway or miscommunications about where we were going and what we were going to do and then, of course, you got that small percentage, which, I mean, collectively, if you look at it nationwide, it's not small at all. It's 40,000 people a year in the United States are buried in on Mark graves. And so what I wanted to do was do in a continuation of that report. When I got to the, my idea was when you got to the residence, you took the initial report, which you also told mom and dad or whoever you're taking the report from that at this time what I would like to do is take some samples of anything that you might have that would have her DNA on. And DNA was uh, not quite in its infancy, but it was, you know, you're still young, I guess. Um, I want some samples of anything that, you know, her hairbrush, her toothbrush, um, anything uh, that you can find on her bed, in her underwear, his underwear, anything like that. We need that, you know, and what we're going to do is put it in, an envelope, we're going to seal the envelope, you can write your name on it, this goes into a lot of detail, and we're going to seal that with evidence tape, and we're not going to touch that until we tell you that we think it's, it's really time to do that. Uh, it's time to open it up and get this evidence out here. So in other words, we got uh, direct DNA instead of mitochondrial DNA, which is what you get with, you know, a relative. Or, and so you have that on file. And, you know, the the big controversy over that, uh, in part, was nobody took it serious. Uh, I approached many, uh, the Sheriff's Association, I approached um, legislators, uh, the BCA, uh, newspapers to give me some, you know, some attention for this, and just nobody did anything. What year was
3: that? What year was that, would you say?
1: This was 19, no, in about 2000, 2001, 2003, something like that, 2000, maybe 1999. And anyways, it just still on dead ears. I mean, I, I even talked with the uh, uh, Center for Missing and Exploited Children down in Kansas, and they thought it was a great idea. You know, but basically they told me, you know, that's great. Good luck, you know. I couldn't get anybody to sink their teeth into it with me, including the sheriff at that time. I'd even called the Wetterling Foundation, and I talked to some lady there, I, I forget her name, but I talked to her and I, I, I read this to her, and you know, I said, This is this is what we got to do for cases like this in the future. We, we get this right away. And, um, at that time, I was working a couple homicide cases, a missing person, and a couple, you know, uh, actually a few missing people. But anyways, uh, you know, my desk was full. And uh, so I told this girl at the Wedding League Foundation what I wanted to do, and at the end of the conversation, she told me, she said, you know, that sounds like a really good idea. Um, why don't you give that to somebody that maybe knows a little bit more about that stuff than you do, you know, about these things in the, you know, Minneapolis or St. Paul, and then the, see how that works for you. And at that time, I ended the conversation. Jeez, good Lord, you know. So anyways, it fell on dead ears. It, it just literally fell on dead ears. And that I've been trying to, to keep it going ever since. And back then, uh, so I could do what I could possibly, everything I could possibly do on my end, is I had a meeting with the Target organization. It was, a, it was a meeting with, you know, the family. The Target put up a... Uh, I think twenty-five thousand dollars reward. I wanted it to be fifty, but my captain at the time says, no, no, twenty-five is is, is is plenty." And I'm going, try to keep me? You know, let's get as much money into this as possible to make it more interesting, get more people involved, and and want to do something." But anyway,s it, it, he carried the day, you know, and I, I feel whatever. So we had this uh, big meeting, and that it was a little press conference and so forth. And as soon as that press conference was over. I took Kathy Swedell and Christine Swedell over to Ramsey Hospital, and I had uh, blood drawn from both of them. And then as soon as we got the blood drawn, I took the blood samples over to the State Crime Bureau, BCA, and I told the um, forensic attendant what I wanted. I said, I want these categorized blood for DNA and put on file, and she said, I mean, well, what's the case? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's a missing person's case. And she said, well, i got to get my supervisor because I'm not sure whether we can do this or not. And so he came out, the supervisor, and he said, what are you looking for? And I said, these are the two last known family members of an individual that's missing. And if these two people die here next year and the year after that, their daughter slash sister is found in some unknown grave, uh, nobody's going to know who the hell she is. She's been going into an unknown individual, and, uh, you know, and that's it. And so anyways, uh, so I would just want that on file. So 20 years from now, whatever, if we find Susan, all you got to do is throw it this DNA sample, compare it, whatever, and there you got it. And he said, you know what? Yeah, he said, that's really a good idea. He said, and I'll do it, and he did it, and so that case, my case, this Swaddell case, um, was the first one to ever have done that, categorize the missing person's DNA from their relatives for, you know, possible and hopeful uh, future use, or been following the papers here, just within the last two months, you know, after Susan Swaddell, or not Susan, but uh, uh, Jacob was found, and uh, there's been some other people, you know, that there's been some suspicious things happening. They are um, going out to the relatives of people uh, with missing children, relatives, and uh, giving, taking blood samples. Or I saw the, the article on that, and I'm pulling you know, point blank language, if you don't mind, well, no shit. You know, 24 years or 23 years or whatever it's been. I'm, I would mean, suddenly become important when it fell on dead ear as well. So the bottom line is now they're doing it great. I'm, I'm happy for it. And uh, it, it's very, very frustrating over all these years because I think about this on a daily basis. I truly do. Well, she's just my best
2: friend. She's, she's bubbly, she's silly, goofy. Um, silly Sue, she's she was a really good student, but for me she was my rock. Um so when she went missing, it didn't make any sense. She wouldn't have left me. She wouldn't have left mom. So she was she was just an amazing person. And I really think that all the speed of everything that happened after the holidays, just took by whirlwind, and I think she was just, she was also extremely naive. So I think somebody really took advantage of that. Um, I really felt bad for her. She had a lot of goals. She, she, you know, she had been studying psychology and foreign languages. She just loved, she just loved life. You know, when everything was going good for her, she was she just was an awesome sister. And if she went off, she went off this not by not of her. You know, she's totally thrown into something that's way over her head. It's just absolutely not in the core of herself to do this. So. But our bond, our bond was just really tight. You know, with the divorce and everything, kids siblings just get closer, and they want to take care of each other. And you know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of kids have families that come. You know, there's divorces and families, and you know, that's a pretty common thing now. So, this sibling loss has been. <sighs> It's been excruciating. My life got lost, too. Nothing, you know, everybody says, well, it's going on 30 years. You should know that something pretty bad probably happened. And I just, my mind just shuts off to that. I just can't, because when you're, like I said in an interview earlier this year, actually January 19th of her disappearance, I had that first interview, this is until you're in this, you're not going to know. You don't think that way. You're just wanting to be hopeful still because time is not on your side, though. <laughs> you just, you can't, except, you know, as you get older, there's so many people that have passed away, people that she
3: adored as being her sister, you know, it's not really within the capacity of that relationship to ever give up that hope despite the passage of time and despite other things, you know.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I was 16 when she disappeared and I'm 46 now. And if you look at my life, it's like I'm I'm still that 16-year-old waiting for her in so many ways. I mean, life has been really hard without her. A lot of me doesn't want to change because if she comes back, I want her to just know me when I was 16. You know, I don't want her to miss out on anything. But by doing that, I'm not living my own life. So, I'm missing out on a lot because she's missing. I mean, it isn't a specific day. It's just, you know, you just you go through the motions. You're numb. I mean, people would say, "Oh, Jesus, thirty years later," but time is time doesn't this time does not heal in this kind of situation. It gets worse.
0: I'm only an amateur podcaster. I'm not an investigator or a member of any authoritative organization. But I have been heavily researching missing person cases for over a decade. And what I can tell you, what stands out to me, as I have said before, are the small clues and details they suggest this person knew Susan. And I don't mean knew her as in she had just met him on the chat lines. And now, in this episode, we have learned about the spare key being moved.
3: Which, that really struck me because I was like, this person obviously had to know there was a spare key. And I'm just wondering if we know who those people were at that time. Who did know that there was a spare key? Was there any list that had been made, or had that avenue ever been gone down?
1: To the best of my recollection, now this is the individual that I, still would like to put a gun to his head to tell the truth. Is uh, you know, I think he was probably could have been with her at one time when she went into the place. And of course, you know, if he was with her, then he would have seen that uh, you'd, you'd go underneath the, you know, this mat and pick up the key and he'd know it was there. I also suspect that this individual, the creep that he is, um, could have easily have come back and, uh, just check things out because he was always looking for something to steal some money or.
3: Was it ever considered or was it overlooked or what are your thoughts on whether it could have been, you know, just somebody else, like somebody else who knew her who wasn't. You know, maybe someone from college or somebody who knew the family, um, just based on the fact that they knew the location of the spare key. I'm just wondering if it could have just been, if those other avenues
1: were ever explored. From what you know, well, absolutely, we explored every avenue. We, you know, I mean, even today, as you and I sit and talk about this, that you know, I, I say, you know, maybe we should do this, or we should should do that. After all these years of me thinking about this, every every day almost, you know, uh, there's always things we could have done or should have done and didn't do or, but anything that came to us at that time, uh, we did, you know, uh, it it becomes very difficult when, uh, uh, you you can get all kinds of ideas, but the other part of it is, is, what are you going to do with that idea, you know, because in order to question somebody about that idea you had, that could be a possibility. You have to have an individual you want to question willing to participate in that question-answer session, you know, uh, and that becomes the the difficult part, you know.
0: Perhaps a deathbed confession or some type of random eyewitness testimony will crop up and be required for answers in this case. But in my opinion, I hope that the Washington County Sheriff's Office and the BCA are asking or re-asking questions to known people who knew Susan at that time in her life. Because I think there are still plenty of questions to ask and answers to find. If you know anything about what happened to Susan Swedell or anything that could be relevant, please speak up and contact the Washington County Sheriff Department's tip line at 651-430-7850. Additionally, please help get Susan's story out there by going to facebook.com slash podcast and share the post with Susan's photo in it. Next time on Still Missing.
1: At a point in her, at a point in her life where she was looking for, you know, the, the permanent sort of relationship, I was 16.
0: Thank you for listening to Still Missing. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have suggestions for how to make the podcast better, please email us at hello at stillmissingpodcast.com.